I hadn't been in the United States for over two years before I, cons- before I considered it. It just wasn't something that was on my radar. It wasn't as if it was something I was uncomfortable doing, nor that I had no experience in. Instead, each summer, I applied my trade as a lifeguard and sw- swim instructor. It's just that while the United States used the Red Cross, just like Canada did, they refused to recognize each other. And so rather than go through another hassle of another course, I decided to just work doing something else. But then one week, the opportunity came up for me not only to attend a class, but attend a brief, a bridge class, and then test out of the exam. The instructor just wanted me to go over some of the ways they did things. The job, it paid really well, so I agreed. I'll never forget the first rescue the instructor demonstrated for us. Swimming to the deep end, he brought a drowning victim up from the bottom of the pool and started to tow them towards the shallow end. It's something I'd done in Canada more times than I could count, sometimes without a flotation de- device and sometimes with one. Each time being told that I'm to pass, I must keep the victim's head above the water. The instructor had an aide with him and was using it as he brought the victim to the shallow end. It all looked normal until he dunked the victim, who was pretending to be unconscious, under the water not once but twice. The victim came up coughing and spitting each time. When he finished the rescue, I asked him about it, and he assured me that everyone does that. That was just to be expected. It certainly wasn't in Canada. I'd dunk a victim and fail. But it was in Chicago. You see, while both Canada and the U.S. had the same courses, while they both had the same intent, they had developed different standards, a different set of rules and expectations. Well, in the passage we come to today, that is exactly what had happened. As the people that the author is writing to, the priests, had reset the standards, reinterpreted the rules, and rejected the ways they had always done things, reducing them to a watered-down, less demanding version of what God wanted from them when it came to their worship. Sure, they thought it was okay, even acceptable, that God would be more than happy to settle for whatever they brought in worship however great or small it might be. And so while God had been clear that the offerings were supposed to be unblemished animals, they had decided among themselves to allow the people to bring animals that weren't, that were blind or lame or sick, figuring that it only made sense, it was only practical to allow the people to kill two birds with one stone, to call their herds and at the same time sacrifice to God. The only problem is while they had lowered the standards and reduced the requirements, rewriting God's commands, God hadn't, nor had he agreed to it. Instead, to God, what they were doing was nothing but a show of disrespect, a way for them to say that he wasn't important to them anymore. In fact, so much so that after calling them to task on it, God sets his sights on the priests. See, while it was the people that were responsible for bringing the animals, the inadequate animals for sacrifices, it was the priests that had not only allowed it, but it failed to teach the people what God truly required of them. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me over to the book of Malachi, this time chapter 2. As you turn, let me remind you where we're at in our study. As we come to the book of Malachi, we, we come across the people of Israel between Nehemiah's first return to serve as governor in Jerusalem and help rebuild, and his second Well, Nehemiah had been around during his first stint as governor. Things had gone well. It it seemed that God was at work. Miraculous things had happened. But after he left, it didn't seem to take too long for things to creep back to the way they were before and for the people's hearts to wander. It's just that for the people, their lives were hard and their dreams of a restored grandeur, the restored grandeur of Israel to return, their dreams of that had all but been dashed. 
they'd been able to return to the land. They had even rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls. They'd even rededicated themselves to God and committed to follow Him. But as a nation, they still remain nothing but this small fringe province on the distant end of the vast Persian Empire. And there was no prospect of that changing. For the most part, their city, it still lay in ruins. And, and most were barely eking out a hard scramble existence on best marginal land. One thing is for sure, that excitement that they had 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 faded and their commitment to God had waned. Even the priests, those that had been set apart, that had been chosen as the go-betweens between the people and God had felt it. For them, their job that was supposed to be a privilege felt more like a burden. Why worship God? What had He done for them lately? Where was He in all this? God, He, he knew they were struggling. He could see their growing lack of commitment to Him. And, and He knew that they were questioning His love for them. And so He sent Malachi to them to remind them of who He was. To remind them of how much He loved them. And warn them what would happen if they didn't correct their ways. Well, no doubt it was because the people were questioning God's love and His commitment to them, that they had started to stray for Him. After all, if God wasn't committed to them, why should they be to Him? It was something you were starting to see in their worship as they had reduced the requirements of the sacrifice and started to settle for something that was far less than what God had asked them for. Little did they know that by doing so, they were making a mockery of God. And, and that, well, that wasn't something that God was going to sit idly by and tolerate. Instead, in the section we come to today, like a parent laying down the consequences of their poor behavior for their kids, God not only addresses the issue, but tells them of the consequences that their actions would bring. That's how He does so, that He lays out for them and us what He expects of them as His followers. If you would, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread out on your faces the offal from the festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. To him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. One can envision the temple filled with priests, Levites, and, and people when all of a sudden Malachi rises up and stands up and in a booming voice starts to speak. The business of the temple would have quickly died down. Both priests and common worshipers would have stopped what they were doing and turned to listen to him. No doubt they, they all knew that whatever Malachi was about to say wasn't likely to be good. That it was most likely going to be critical as the prophets most often were. But none of them would have known how critical he would be or to whom. 
That is, until Malachi turned his attention directly to the priests and gave them a command, an admonition directly from God. You can be sure the irony of that wouldn't have been lost on the priests as it was part of their God-given job to convey the commands. God, He had set them apart as those that were there to interpret the commandments for the people, to settle questions about ritual cleanliness, establish the proper valuation of the tithe, and determine the acceptability of the offerings. They were the ones that were to teach the commands. And yet God had turned on them what they were used to dealing with and given them a command. And in fact, God says, you priests who are so used to applying commandments to others, listen up, now I have a commandment for you. While you think you're doing all you need to do, you're not. Instead, you've forgotten what your role is. You've neglected your main job. While you ought to be honoring my name and glorifying me, you aren't. You see, it's just that the main task of the priest had always been to give glory to God, to set him apart, revere him, and help others to do the same. Priests, they were supposed to spend their lives seeking God, pursuing him, and surrendering their heart to him above everything else. And yet, instead of doing so, these priests had failed to set their hearts to honor him. So they were just going through the motions, no longer awestruck by God or concerned for his glory. And so Malachi calls them out on it. Somehow the, the priests, they had completely lost their moorings and were floating far from where they're supposed to be. Like a group that has forgotten why they were formed. Like the, the YMCA that started as a Christian movement but has long since neglected it. Like a church that once worshipped God but has become nothing more than a social club. Like, like a pastor who was once called to ministry but doesn't devote his time to God's Word but instead spends all his time operating social assistance programs, they too had forgotten their role. They had forgotten the reason that they existed, why God had chosen them and formed them in the first place. That they had been created to give honor and glory to God. And in fact, it was rooted in their history. At least that's what Exodus chapter 32 tells us. You see there we learn that while Moses had been up on the Mount Sinai receiving the commandments of the Lord after he'd led the people out of Egypt, that while he was up on that mountain, the people below had grown uneasy. It's just that Moses had been gone an awful long time and they felt they needed something to worship, something to turn to in their anxiety. Aaron knew it, and so he collected all their gold and made it into an idol for them. Then he said to them, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Exodus 32 tells us that immediately the people, they responded by dancing and worshiping this idol. In fact, all indications are that they would, be, would have been content to keep doing so had Moses not shown up. Moses, he could hardly believe his eyes when he saw it. After all, God, the one true God, had just led them out of Egypt during the Exodus. He had just parted the Red Sea for, him, for them and was just giving them his law. So he couldn't understand how the people could do this. Overcome with anger, Moses smashed the tablets with the commandments on them, burned the calf, and ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He then turned to Aaron, the one who had fashioned this idol, and said, and asked Aaron about it. And Aaron replied, I told them, whoever has gold and jewelry, take it off. Then they gave it me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf, as if it had leapt out of the fire on its own. You can envision Moses just shaking his head. Exodus 32 reads, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become laughing stocks to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. 
Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. That day, God, he chose them to, as a tribe. He set them apart to be the ones that would operate the temple because they took his glory and honor seriously enough to defend it. In fact, they were prepared to kill their friends and neighbors and brothers alike to do so. That was the heritage of the Levites. But not only that. No, those among the Levites that were priests in the temple were also the descendants of Phineas, a man we come across in Numbers chapter 25. And there we learn that while Israel was staying in Shittim, the man began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And when the women invited them to sacrifice to their gods, they happily joined in. So the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a midnight woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the man into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I for my honor among them. Therefore tell him, I'm making a covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Phinehas had believed that the honor of God was important, important enough to protect Well, it was because of Phinehas that the priests had been given their covenant of peace because of the Levites that they had been chosen. Well, you think with a heritage like that, a heritage of honoring God, that that would have been a part, a priority for the priests. And yet here we learn that sadly it wasn't. That while their predecessors might have been prepared to kill those they even loved to defend God's honor, these priests weren't prepared to even say no when a lame or blind or sick animal was brought to them for the sacrifices. Instead of honoring God, they were despising him. God, he was a great king, the almighty Lord, the one that would be worshipped from the rising to the setting sun, from the far east to the distant west, and everywhere in between by everyone. And yet they didn't consider him worthy enough to bring good offerings to him. Instead, they brought him less than what they would bring to their governor. Somehow, they had forgotten how worthy of honor God was, how important his honor was to him. And so in the section we read today, God tells them that unless they make a change, unless they start honoring Him in their hearts and in their lives, there would be consequences. Which leads us to the first thing we want to notice this morning, that godly leaders are those that honor God. That godly leaders are those that honor God. In fact, so important is it that we become disqualified when we dishonor Him. God, he blessed the priests in numerous ways. He had blessed them by empowering them to lead his people in worship, to teach his word and announce his forgiveness to them. Blessed them by establishing and protecting them, providing them with perpetual food from the tithes of the people, giving them special cities to live in. God had blessed them and promised them much. And yet here God is clear that unless they change, he will curse their blessings. 
while a curse or blessings would affect all the, those blessings, stripping them of their privilege as the servants of God. But not only that, no more important than that, it would also strip them of their ability to perform their duty. After all, most of the people of the day, they went to the temple to have God's blessing pronounced on them and their sacrifices. Blessings were the result of proper worship, and the priests were even tasked by God at bless, saying blessings over the people. So in some regards, you could go as far as saying blessings were their business. In fact, the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace was something that God had commanded them to give to the people upon request and was not only the conclusion of their time in the temple, but probably the high point of it. And yet if God cursed their blessings, their blessings would not only be ineffective, but function like a curse. Rather than go home after being blessed to experience God's provision, those they blessed would go home to disaster. In other words, these priests were being rendered ineffective, incapable of doing their job, as those who weren't honoring God with their whole heart weren't worthy of giving His blessing away. What's worse? God here goes on to say He will rebuke their descendants. To rebuke something means to change it, to stop it, to replace it. In other words, God is saying that he will stop their family line from being priests. No, and it's not that he wanted to do away with the priesthood. Instead, even here, he tells us that he's giving this admonition so that the covenant he had with Levi may continue. Instead, like he had done with Eli and his two sons during the time of Samuel, God was saying he'd cut off the lines of the unrighteous priests. Today, that might not seem like a big deal to us, but Back then, family lineage was considered vitally important. In fact, so important was it that they went to great lengths to make sure it continued. It was your identity. And for the priests, there can be little doubt that the priestly office was their heritage. As it was only those born in the tribe of Levite and only those Levites born into, born into Aaron's branch of the Levites that could become a priest. All other priests were false. So to cut off their line would, would not only be a total loss of their reputation, their status, their standing, and their name, but to remove their distinct family office of honor as well. Sadly, this was a consequence that Nehemiah eventually would see to when he returned as he stripped the priests that were in the temple of their jobs and replaced them with priests that had just returned from Persia, priests who had never practiced in the temple before, but who honored God. Well, if cursing, and cursing their blessing and cutting off their line wasn't enough, God here, he goes on to say that he will spread offal on their faces. The priest says they, they were responsible to cut out the internal unclean parts, the intestines of the animal and their contents, dung and feces before sacrificing them. They would then carry those parts out of the camp and burn them. That's what made up the offal. This last week, my five-year-old and I were talking about the passage I'm preaching, and we hit this verse. At first I thought, this isn't the kind of conversation I want to have with my five-year-old. But it's God's Word, and it's God's Word to her. So I told her that in the passage, God here says He's going to smear poo on the priest's face, faces. And immediately she looked horrified and asked, why? Well, because they didn't act how they should have, I said. Because they hadn't honored God, God was no longer going to honor them. Then wanting to be thorough and true to the text, I added not just a little bit of it, because God says he's going to take the poo from a festival, a time when there were many worshipers and many more sacrifices, when there'd be enormous, voluminous amount of offal of poo. In other words, huge amounts of it were what the priests could expect on their collective faces. 
what's more, God then says he will carry them out of the city with the rest of the dung and fling them into a pile of it, into a pile of poo. Immediately, my five-year-old wanted clarification. God is going to do that? And then she, had, she asked, what about the disciples? I said, no, no, this was way Old Testament before that. She said, this is gro- that is gross. And it is. Now, I know for some of you, you might be used to a little off humor, and so it's also a little bit funny for you. But you need to know that this threat was anything but funny. After all, besides being gross, having dung flung on one's face, would have made the priest unclean, unfit for the temple, only fit to be carried out with the offal to the rubbish heap and confined there. Priests, they were supposed to be cleaner than everyone else. Their cleanliness symbolized their holiness before a holy God. And dung, well, it was about as unholy a substance as a substance could be. So God is saying that their ministry is over, that they were going from the sanctuary to the dung heap. Clearly, God takes his glory seriously, doesn't he? Clearly, dishonoring him angers him. After all, you don't talk about rubbing, defiling muck, rubbing dung in someone's face unless you're annoyed. Note that God, he wanted them to have a visual of how repulsive he found their superficial handling of his commands, a visual of what their worthless sacrifices looked like to him. Of course, God wasn't literally going to do this. But make no mistake, the priests would be disqualified, their heritage terminated, their blessing voided and for not honoring him as they should. That, that is just how serious God takes his honor. Well, let's be honest. The last thing anyone wants today is the prospect of God smearing their face with piles of muck and dumping them in a pile of refuge. Now, fortunately for us, this passage is easy to deflect to suggest that it wasn't really written to us, but instead it was written to priests a long time ago. And since the Levitical priesthood collapsed when the temple was destroyed in the first century, priests who no longer exist to console ourselves that God would never think of us like this, regardless of what we do. But I, unfortunately, I don't think this passage can be so easily ignored. After all, the role of priest has an awful lot of similarities to the role of the pastor today. Now, a pastor is not a priest. They do not offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has done that once and for all. Nor do they dispense saving grace. Jesus did that. But pastors and priests share similar roles. Both pastors and priests are called to be God's messengers to teach the truth, to protect God's people. Over in the New Testament, Ephesians 4 says that Christ gave to the church some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And 1 Timothy tells us that there are to be overseers in the church overseers that are capable of teaching. In other words, parts of the priest's duty are continued in the church by pastors and elders today. Well, since that is the case, you got to think that what God says here to the priest would apply to wayward pastors and elders as well, those that are failing to honor God today. In other words, God is saying to them today, if you do not honor me with your whole heart, I will disqualify you as my messenger too. I can hear someone say, well, it stinks to be you, but I'm not a pastor and I have no intent of ever being an elder, so I have nothing to worry about here from this passage. Why, why should I care about this passage? Well, for one, one day I won't be here anymore and you'll need to call another preaching pastor. And you need to know what God has said about how a preaching pastor, how a pastor should follow him and honor him. For another, I hope it inspires you to, to pray for the pastors here to, to hold us, to hold me accountable that I 
make sure that I am honoring God. So more than that, this passage, it highlights for us how important God considers his honor and glory and desires us to honor him. And that, it doesn't just apply to pastors. After all, you need to remember that if you're a believer today, God has made you into a nation of priests. 1 Peter 2 reads, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Peter is clear that God has chosen you and made you into a priest to declare his praise, to glorify him and give him the honor that he is due. That's where we're told that as priests we are to offer sacrifices. In fact, the book of Philippians tells us we're to offer our finances. The book of Hebrews, our praise and good works, our songs and service. And in the book of Romans, our very lives. So you see, well, this passage calls for you to look at me and for me to look, take a hard look in the mirror. And I encourage you to do so to determine whether or not I'm honoring God with my whole heart or not. It also calls you to look at yourself. So let me ask you, if God were to evaluate your heart today, how are you doing at honoring him? What would he find in your heart? Would he find someone whose heart is set on honoring him or one that is worthy of being smeared by him? Would he find someone who is like the priests were of Malachi's day, who were only following him when it was convenient, that obeyed but not all the time, someone that went through the motions but whose heart wasn't in it anymore? Perhaps someone who went to church but doesn't engage in the worship, just stands there and spends his sermon time daydreaming. Or someone that's all too happy to not go to church if there's something better comes up. Would he find someone that gave to his work, but only out of their leftover time and money after they got everything they wanted, who claimed to know Jesus but whose lives didn't show it? Westminster Confession of the Faith, which has been a standard of what we believe for almost 400 years, starts off by saying that the chief end of man is to glorify God and worship Him forever. Well, is that your chief end? Is it your main goal? Does bringing honor to God come before everything else in your life? It's far easier to tell than you might think. After all, if it is, it'll show up in what you say and what you do. So for a minute, consider your talk. The Ten Commandments were clear that we were not to use the name of the Lord in vain. To do so would bring dishonor to Him. So do you. Over in Ephesians 5 we read, But among you there must not even be the hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So ask yourself, does your talk honor him? Or are your words full of obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking? Still, more than by what you don't say, ask yourself whether others know you're honoring God by what you do say, by how you share him with the world. Or for a minute, think about the way you live. Do you honor him by how you live, by obeying him? You see, while we might not be priests like they were, when we fail to do what God wants from us in our service and in our worship to Him, we are no better than these priests were. Dear friends, make no mistake, God wants us to honor Him, to serve Him with our whole heart. Well, back in Malachi, one of the ways that they were dishonoring God was by their teaching. Which leads to the second thing we want to notice today. Godly leaders honor God by teaching and obeying God. God's Word. As His followers, we honor God when we teach true doctrine and live it out. 
Here God, wanting to be clear how they should act, reminds them of how it was with Levi. How he had promised to give Levi and his descendants life, blessing them physically and spiritually, and providing them peace and well-being. If only they would revere him and serve him. Unlike the priests of Malachi did day, they knew what an awesome task this was, and even more understood who the God was who was giving this covenant. And so they took it seriously. They stood in awe of him. They revered him. So much so that it showed up in their teaching. The priests of that day, they had three jobs. They were to make intercessory prayers. They were to perform the sacrifices. And they were to teach the law. Leviticus 10 reads this. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. In other words, God had set apart the priests to be the one the people could go to when they had questions and have the ones that God would use to help the people apply His Word to their situation. They were to be God's messengers, representing Him and His Word to them. I mean, it's not like it was... It's not like today. Most of the people in Malachi's day, they didn't have a copy of God's Word. Most of them didn't read. And if they did, they couldn't afford a copy. It wasn't like they could have gone online and just downloaded one. Instead, what they learned from the Word of God came through the priests. The priests were their source of information. God had entrusted the priests to preserve knowledge and be the ones the people could go to for it. Years before, over in Hosea, we read, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you ignored the law of your God, I will ignore your children. You see, if the priest priest didn't teach it, the people didn't know it. So above all else, the priests needed to make sure they weren't neglecting their teaching. Besides, the only way to preserve knowledge is to teach it. And yet clearly, this group was failing at that task. It's something they had done. After all, given the kind of problem the people had with their worship, they clearly hadn't taught what God required of them in worship. And given what we'll find through the rest of the book, they clearly hadn't taught them about marriage covenants or about tithing and some other things either. Unlike those that came before that taught the truth, who had no unrighteousness found on their lips, they had failed in their task. No doubt they had the reasons for it. For some, it was probably that life was frustrating and hard and the people they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear how their offerings didn't make the grade. How, how, how what they were doing was wrong. And so these priests, they, they gave up on that narrow path of God's Word in favor of this less demanding, more acceptable morality. Sadly, while the priests were servants, and as servants were not authorized to change God's commands or reinterpret them to better fit their time or to make them more acceptable to the people of their day, that hadn't stopped them from trying. Other priests had even showed partiality as they did so, applying the commands differently to different people, perhaps going lighter on the big donor, winking at their seeing, permitting their divorce, railing on a common worshiper for the same thing. Still others, like some preachers today, they just avoided the tough conversations and took the easy, easy road, at best turning a blind eye to sin, and at worst outright approving it. Well, as a result, instead of pulling people away from sin, they were allowing them to sink in it. Billy Graham, back in 1966, spoke at the First World Congress on Evangelicalism held in Berlin, Germany. He addressed the 1,200 delegates there from more than 100 countries. And as he did so, he addressed them on the theme, Stains on the Altar. And he suggested that many of them had been offering God defiled sacrifices just as the priests in Malachi did. Among the many examples he gave, he said that many pastors are 
aren't faithful in studying God's Word and often offer a watered-down, man-pleasing sermon each week instead of the Word of God. And some fail to honor Him by speaking of His judgment and righteousness, His grace and justice. One pastor took a summer off and after listening to others preach for the summer wrote, it was all pretty thin gruel. Where are the great themes of Scripture? You don't find them in the majority of sermon topics today. Where is the effort that's necessary to make a sermon say something worth crossing town or even crossing the street to hear? Sadly, today I know far too many pastors who fluff off their sermon, who study minimally, skirt tough topics, and refuse to offend, that are so concerned that people get upset and leave, they just dodge topics altogether. But make no mistake, a pastor first and foremost must honor God by studying and teaching His Word. It's the most important thing they do. More important than congregational care, than caring for the flock, because if you, do not, if you cannot direct people to God's Word, you don't know how to care for them, and it's not caring to lead them astray. More important than leading, because if you don't, you don't know where to lead or how to lead. There is nothing more important. And yet, sadly, today, in many places, often we get this watered-down message with little content. Well, a pastor that skimps on their study, that doesn't preach the whole counsel of God, that doesn't use the Word of God much in their message, that doesn't honor God, needs to have dung smeared on their face. Martin Luther, the, the father of the Reformation, once listed ten qualifications for pastors. That they should be able to teach plainly and in order, have a good head, possess good power of language, a good voice and good memory, that they should know when to stop, that they should be sure, sure of what he, they mean to say, be ready to state body and soul, goods and reputations on its truth, that they should study diligently and suffer themselves to be vexed and criticized by everyone. Dear friends, that true servant of God doesn't alter the message to tickle the ears of the people. He doesn't shrink back from tough doctrine, doesn't avoid hard passages, or get, only give messages that please the masses or draw the crowds. Instead, they preach the Word of God and don't apologize for it. They stand on the infallible, inerrant Word of God, preach the entire counsel of God, and leave the results to God. So when a trusted pastor speaks hard or uncomfortable words to you, Remember that they're just trying to be faithful to God and pray that they would continue to stay faithful to Him, being willing to speak hard words for the good of God's people. Well, the priests in Malachi's day, they weren't doing that. Once, what's worse is they weren't even prepared to live what they preached. What we read in Romans 2 could apply, for them, could apply to them. There we read, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those that are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by the breaking of the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because your words and your actions don't line up. The priests of Malachi's day, they had deliberately changed the course of their service. They didn't study. They didn't tell the truth. They didn't live out their faith before the people. By their teaching and lives, they even caused others to turn away. Unlike Levi and his descendants that had walked with God, they had charted their own course. 
But a true minister walks with God. And as he does so, pursues peace. He, he is transparent. He's straightforward. He's faithful in all his dealings. He lives the truth. He talks the talk and walks the walk. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Sadly, our world is full of examples of pastors that have failed to do that, isn't it? In fact, every year there seems to be another church leader that falls only to disgrace their church, dishonor God, cause people to stumble, and in the, in the process, disgrace themselves. John Piper once preached on this passage. He wrote this. Let me say a word to those of you who have been the victim of priestly failure. I have in mind people who have seen in the Christian ministers so much hypocrisy and expediency and inconsistency and worldliness and partiality and greed and cowardice and pettiness and harshness and insensitivity that you have stamped a big question mark on the reality of the whole Christian faith or put up a big wall between you and the ministry of the Word. God has something to say to you in this text. And I think... What he is saying goes like this. I hate priestly hypocrisy 10,000 times more than you do. And I intend to smear dung in the face of every pastor who forsakes my glory, departs from my ways, teaches for hire, and causes people to stumble. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't take it on yourself. What a tragedy it would be this morning if anyone here is turning away from God and His glory because of the hypocrisy of some of His messengers. When God Himself intends to smear dung in the face of those hypocrites because He loves you and will not suffer His glory to be profaned forever. Isn't this text designed this morning not only to warn me, the preacher, against failure, but also to warn you, the people, against being the victims of that failure? God is this morning is saying to some of you, don't let the hypocritical Christian leaders of your past drag you with them to destruction. Still, don't only think this applies to pastors today. No, if you're a believer, it also applies to you. After all, God didn't just tell pastors to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything He had commanded them. He told all of us to. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go so far in 2 Corinthians as to call you God's ambassador. In other words, if you're a believer today, you've been given the task of teaching His Word and living it out just as the priests were. And that is something that God still takes very seriously. In fact, over Mark 9, Jesus said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. That it would be better to be drowned than be a part of shipwrecking someone's faith by causing them to stumble, by failing to honor God with their words or actions. So let me ask you, do you cause others to stumble? Does how you live draw people to Jesus or does it push them away? Truthfully, most Christians, if they're honest, they don't consider themselves to be very good ambassadors for Jesus. In fact, some of you might be wondering whether you should expect a face full of muck to be headed your way. If so, you need to take this passage as a warning, like the priests were supposed to, as a wake-up call. Start by repenting. As it's never too late to start fresh and set your heart on God. Never too, too late to do what Levi and his descendants did and see God for who he was and revere and sin and awe of him. To consider his greatness, the greatness of the one true God who's worthy of all praise, the very maker of the galaxies and ruler of the nations and knower of all mysteries. To remember who he is and remember what he's done. How he chose you, loved you, redeemed you, created you, stays with you, is there to comfort God and protect you and has given you hope to refocus your heart on Him. It's never too late to do that. And then start to take the task of honoring Him with what you say and do by how you live and teach as seriously as He does.
And if you're here and are listening and are already honoring God, you already live for Him, seek to serve and worship Him with your whole heart, then let this passage encourage you to continue to do so. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to prayer, I'm reminded of a prayer by Bob Moorhead. God, give us men ribbed with the steel of your Holy Spirit, men who will not flinch when the battle is fierce. It's men who want to acquiesce or compromise or fade when the enemy rages. God, give us men who can't be bought, bartered, or badgered by the enemy, men who will pay the price, make the sacrifice, stand the ground, and hold the torch high. God, give us men delivered from mediocrity, men with vision high, pride low, faith wide, love deep and patient long, men who will not surrender principles of truth in order to accommodate their peers. God, give us men more committed to conviction than convenience, men who will give their life for the eternal instead of indulging their lives for a moment in time. Give us men who are fearless in the face of danger, calm in the midst of pressure, bold in the midst of opposition, men who will pray earnestly, work long, preach carefully, and wait patiently, Men whose walk is by faith, behavior is by principle, whose dreams are in heaven, and whose book is your word. God, give us men who are equal to the task. Lord, I would add to that that you give us people that are equal to the task. Because while I believe, Lord, and while you teach that this is a call to pastors, it's really your call to all of us. So, Lord, would you give us people that are equal to the task today, people that would honor you with your words, Lord, would you forgive us when we have failed to do that? Would you make us into a people that serve you, who live for you, and who honor you in what we do and say? In Jesus' name, amen.